uh, I would like to look at uh, breaking free of habits and how meditation can help us. And recently I had a book whose uh, subtitle is A Buddhist Guide to Breaking Free of Habits. And why did I write the book? Because it became obvious to me that this is what was one of a kind of, in a way, our kind of a source of suffering, that we were often not necessarily willingly caught in our habit. And so I've been reflecting for some time, how can meditation helps us, help us with this kind of, kind of habitual patterns that have a tendency to fix us, to limit us. And personally, I would see, in a way, grasping at kind of an, the essential pattern of that. And then from that, there are other diverse patterns. And personally, I feel that meditation can really help us in terms of the awareness or, or the technique of meditation, but a technique of meditation which leads us to become more aware of ourselves, of others. And I feel that one of the things that we see is habits. I think this is when we sit in meditation, I think we become, it seems to be more and more aware that we have a tendency to think in a certain way. So I would say we have mental habits. And if you look at your thoughts, you might have looked at your thought yesterday, and you might have noticed they were fairly repetitive. <coughs> and I would say that you might not have that many truly original thoughts. <laughs> but maybe you thought them before. And it's the same with, I would say, we have emotional habits. That if we sit in meditation, we can feel again and again a certain type of emotional tone, emotional groove in our being, and we feel the same type in daily life. I would also say that we have physical patterns. And so what I'd like to look at today, it's more the emotional and the mental, and maybe if I have the time, I'll briefly look at the physical. But first I'd like to point out that then we have all these different habits, groove, mental, emotional, physical. And I think over time, we can see, and I think this is what is important also in terms of meditation, to start to notice actually there are different levels of the manifestation of our habits and pattern. And according to the level, then we can do things differently. Because often I feel our attitude, uh, attitude to our habit is, if only I did not have it. But that doesn't seem to have much effect. We can try to repress them, and then bing, they come back. So that doesn't also seems to work. But I think the thing is to see that there are different manifestations, and if we deal differently with them, actually we have more possibility of working with them creatively. So the three types of habits I see is intense, habitual, and light. And I think what is very important with the intense is to see that we do not always feel like this. 
Well, this is what is interesting with intense manifestation of habits, either thinking intensely, feeling intensely, intense sensation. It's because it's intense. Immediately we go, I always feel like this. And I think it's very essential to see, and in terms of the Buddha's teaching, it arises upon condition. Intensity is generally generated by condition, generally surprising condition, shocking condition. And I remember once I was phoning a friend, and I said, how are you? And she said, it's terrible, it's awful, it's hopeless, it's always hopeless. So I said, but what happened? Nothing <laughs> happened. It's always hopeless. So after 10 minutes, finally, finally, after 10 minutes, she said, yesterday, something happened. And I am very upset about it. And then we could look together how she, can be, she could creatively engage with it. But as long as she said, it's always like this, I mean, what can you do to always like this, you, you feel kind of stuck. But if you see, ah, I feel intensely because something happened, then I think it's more possible to creatively engage and for the creative potential to arise. I think the creative potential can't do anything with always. It's a little kind of, you know, it's kind of a little difficult. Then you have what I would call the habitual. This is more like tendencies. And tendencies that we might be blind to, or tendency we might be aware of, habitual way we think, habitual way we feel, habitual sensation. But what I can say that generally others will know. Others know your patterns. Others see your habits, even if you don't see them. And I can remember we had a, once a, a Sunday lunch there was all the family, sisters, brother-in-laws, and there was a little lull in the conversation. This we'd just been barely married with Stephen. He was not used to the family yet. There was a lull in the conversation, and him being very nice, he wanted to fill the lull with a question, which was, did you vote today? And we thought, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 you don't want to go there. Because straight away, one brother-in-law went in this 20-minute tirade, political tirade, and we were all sitting there waiting for it to finish. He never, Stephen never did it again. <laughs> he kind of learned. But you see, all of us knew that this would have that reaction. So we knew the habit of that person. You know, and I think often we know, some, we know our habits, but others often know them very clearly. Then you have what I would call the light manifestation of the habit. And it's kind of light stuff. And I would say it's the easiest level to work with habit. You have light stuff which comes, comes again and again but are very light. One of my loop, I would say, is luggage. I have a luggage loop. I travel a lot, so I sit in meditation. I'm going to America. In five months' time, what should I put in my luggage? <laughs> a little early. And so at the beginning, I did not see the loop. So I would just do the luggage. 
And then I saw the loop and I thought, uh-uh, five months ahead, you don't need to do the luggage. <laughs> Maybe a week ahead, yes. So in a way, over time, you see, oh, that's what I do. That's what is in my mind. That's what kind of repeats itself. I think the thing with habit, they repeat itself. They're not new, they repeat themselves. So what I like to do first is in a way to look at the emotional habits, because in a way, I think we are feelings. Feelings are perfectly normal. They are a function of our human beingness. But what is interesting is when from feeling you go into disturbing emotion. And a lot of the time, there is some connection with what I would call our emotional habits, our, our emotional pattern. And so in a way, I think like today, we were working with Vedana, with feeling, feeling torn. And I think this was a start through the meditation to learn to be a little differently with this emotional patterning, instead of being so identified and so it, in a way, to kind of know more, what is it I feel? How is it manifested in the body? Instead of going into the story of it, just going inside the feeling itself, I think can really help us with the habit. So I like to look, to look through a few habits the first one is fear. I mean, fear, I think most people experience fear at some point. And I would say, in terms of the functioning, this is a natural survival mechanism. It is important to have fear in our body. I mean, some years ago, I was walking not far from, in Fairfax, in the, in the woods. I was walking, talking to Stephen, being in nature, and suddenly I made this huge jump before I was even conscious of what was going on, my body had jumped. And Stephen said, well, wow, that was a good jump. <laughs> and because I nearly walked on a rattlesnake, my feet was going to go, and before I consciously saw it, I, I moved. So, of course, the fear is a natural survival mechanism for this body. But what we have to be careful is when it becomes an emotional habit that actually you are even fearful or afraid when there is no fear. I think this is very important to look at, that you be afraid because there is a rattlesnake or somebody has a gun or something of that nature. This is normal but that we are afraid when there is nothing. That is interesting to look at. And also to see how we exaggerate the fear if something happens, which is fearful. So looking at the intense, when we're very intensely afraid, I mean, generally two things, fight or flight, but also sometimes we are just paralyzed by fear totally paralyzed, we can't move. And uh, since last year, I have taken up with my niece uh, swinging in trees. That's what we do on the holiday. We go to this obstacle course in the trees. You throw, your, you throw yourself from ropes into nets, and I mean, you do all kinds of things of that nature. And basically, it's working with fear. But all the time, you have a harness, and you connect it to a cable. So the niece wants to go, she's eight years old, so off we go to the swinging uh, activities. 
And so at the beginning, she's so afraid. And she's so cumbersome and so kind of, ah, la, la, and kind of, oh, I'm afraid. Oh. And it's kind of, you know, takes ages. So we do the first course, and then she's really so afraid. I said, okay, let's do something more easy. And she, the guy said, oh, there is this walk in the tree. You just go on planks and up, 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 and in the tree, there is no obstacle. So I thought, okay, let's do that. So we go, you know, I mean, but you go to really the top of huge trees. So, you know, two meters, five meters, 10 meters, whatever, but we're very high. So we get in the middle of it. And suddenly she stops in the middle, the highest point, and she says, Auntie, I am too afraid. I want to get down. And there was no elevator. <laughs> so we had to continue. We were just halfway through. So with mindfulness, love, and faith, I coaxed her to go down. And so we go down. Finally, we get to the end of it. And we're walking. And she turns to me. She said, but auntie, how come you were not afraid? Because I really was not afraid. I said, look, we have this harness. We connect it to the cable. We are totally safe. That's why I was not afraid. I said, ah. The next thing she does, she asks the guy, is it true that it's safe? And the guy says, yes. She throws herself to see if it works. <laughs> the cable and the rope. And it works. <laughs> After that, you could not stop her. But to me, it was very interesting because it was the same thing. She was very high, but she was not afraid anymore because she was safe. And to me, that's one of the things we have to look. And that's why tomorrow the questioning can be useful, is to look, is it really frightening? I mean, we can be intensely afraid, and we are safe. I mean, if something is happening, then yes, we can be intensely afraid. But to notice if there is these patterns of being frightened, and then to really check, am I safe? Because I had another interesting experience with this swinging. <laughs> One is the, there is this, the most difficult course, is throwing oneself like a thousand style. So you start two meters, then you go five meters, and then you go 10 meters. First one, easy, knees easy. Next one, oh yeah, okay. And the third one, I mean, I have to show, I am the first one, I have to show the example. So the last one, okay, here we go. So I go, climb the net, I get to the platform, and I am shaking. I mean, my mind is not shaking, but my body is shaking. And it was very interesting for me to experience that. That you actually, your body has this survival mechanism. If something looks dangerous, it will be say, wait, wait a minute. This is weird. So I kind of breathe, you know, I breathed and breathed, and then it was okay. But what was interesting, a year later, we did it again. And I jumped, and there was no shaking. It's like my body had learned, this is OK. You can do that. And so it was the same thing. Throwing from 10 missed the same thing. There was no shaking. 
So in a way to see, we, we, I know the, the fear is, is very, but I think it's kind of in a way with the meditation to kind of look, what is fearful? What, what is frightening? How can I be with this? Then you have a fear as a habit, more in an habitual thing. You're not doing anything kind of weird and nothing weird is happening to you. And it's more like an habitual thing. It's kind of like, and fear like that is a tension. You're tense. It's a little like a kind of a, more like an animal thing. You're kind of always careful. I mean, what is interesting here, look at the animal here. They're not frightened. They're not kind of like this. <laughs> We're all in silence. We don't do anything to them. Over 10 years, they've learned this is safe. So they're not like this. But if you go in other places, they will, as soon as they see you, they will move. And this is, in a way, what we experience when we go to South Africa. What I found interesting is that if you are with somebody who is afraid, then I become frightened. And I think it's important for us to see fear is extremely contagious. Fear as a pattern is very contagious. And so I think to, to, to look also at ourselves, do I want to spread fear? Do I want to be influenced by fear? And so in a way, because what we experience when we come back to France is, ah, oh, it's so safe here. And there's nothing has ever happened to us in South Africa, but things are in the air. It's interesting how it's uh, the contagion of it. And, so, and it makes you tense. So in a way to notice, is there this tension in fear? Then there is light, the light fear as an emotional habit. And in a way, this is like when we're careful. And I think this is fair enough to have you know, light to be careful. But what is interesting is what I would call the fear afterwards. You drive a car, or you are in a car, and you nearly have an accident. On the moment you do what is necessary, you avoid the accident, and after, <gasps> you are like this. And for the next hour, you, <gasps> I nearly, I nearly, I nearly died. This could have happened. Notice how, in a way, you have this, what I would call, retrospective fear when nothing has happened. Noticing the, what we do with it. Do I just, okay, I move, you know, it worked, I moved, it was okay. And to be careful that we don't go into from the light fear to the habitual, to the intense, because we can go very quickly. So in a way, I, th I think in a way to try to see how can we be with light fear first, to know it, because I think it's easier to be with it in that way. And then to see how do I make it get worse or how do I stay at that light level. And to me at that level, the, the meditation can really help us, but not possibly in the way we think. I think meditation, awareness meditation or questioning meditation can help us why we fear. Because it brings us back to the moment, and then we can ask the question, is it safe or not? Because when I used to be in Korea, I used to be very frightened at night. 
And then I asked Master Kuzan, what should I do? He said, go to the question. What is this? What is this? I thought, great, magic. It's going to protect me from the bad guy out there. So I would go out at night to the toilet. What is this? What is this? What is this? And it worked. I was not afraid anymore. Until I realized it was not magic. Because before I use a questioning, I would be, oh, there is a guy with a knife. He's going to get me. My heart used to pound. I used to be afraid to get a heart attack. But when I did, what is this? What is this? I came back to the moment. And I was in the middle of nowhere, in Korea. Who would know to come and get me? Because look, we fear, we exaggerate, we fabricate. And I think, in a way, one of the things of meditation is to bring back to awareness, to the present. Am I safe or not? Is there something frightening or not? And also to see one thing we fear as a habit is that often the fear is in the future. This, I think, is very important to see. When you're afraid, look, are you afraid because of something in the present? Or are you afraid, what if this happened? And I had a friend like this, he was afraid for 30 years. That if this happened, it would be finished, demolished, life finished. And then I saw him, and he looked weird. I said, what's the matter? He said, well, you know, I was afraid of this for 30 years, and it happened. And I said, the end? And he said, I am fine. <laughs> I am totally fine. For 30 years, I was afraid, and I am fine. Because that's the problem. In abstraction, your creative potential cannot be activated. Your creative potential can only be activated in the present. So, so if something happens, generally, we creatively engage with it. In the moment, it happens. But in the future, we cannot do anything apart, in a way, from proliferating and exaggerating. So this is, in a way, in terms of a habitual pattern of fear to look. Is it a present fear? Or is it a futuring fear, a forecasting fear? Then another thing we can uh, experience is anger. I mean, that's something I experience. And I would say that as a function, it's very important to see anger is not... I know in, in uh, Buddhism, anger has a very bad press. I'm, I'm aware of that. But anger... I mean, personally, I think it's better to be angry than to be resentful. But I think generally Buddhists are not angry, they're resentful. <laughs> but of course, if the anger leads you to attack somebody, then I think it's better to be resentful <laughs> than to being angry. So again, one has to kind of gauge what's going on. But what is anger? Anger is very normal, I think, feeling. It's a fiery feeling. It's energetic feeling. Generally, it's a feeling which makes you act. I think it's important to see. You, you, you have anger, there is movement, there is fire, there is energy. And so, when it is intense, it's generally something happened. You feel frustrated, there is an obstacle, something is not working, 
whatever it is, something happened. And then if you really feel too frustrated, then you explode. But the problem with explosion is that generally wisdom go out of the window. It's very hard to be wise and creative when you are in a full-blown explosion of anger. It's very hard to be clear. So I think, to me, this is a little kind of the downside of this intense anger, is that generally, wow, and then afterwards, you, ooh, ooh, I should not have said that, or not that way, and boom. And so in a way, it's not that one should not be angry. I think, you know, at least if you are angry, you can feel it's very painful. But at the same time, it's very energetic. And it can, I think, be a little addictive. Because when you're really angry, you feel very alive. This is a little the problem as a habit to see. But often the consequences are a little negative for ourselves, for others, in terms of suffering, also in terms of heart attack or whatever. Again, it depends. Then you have habitual anger. This is interesting. It's what I would call more like the irritation groove. You get easily irritated. Mm. I kind of, and you kind of, ooh. And it's kind of like you prickly. If when you have this kind of habitual irritation groove, it's kind of a little prickly. Anything can in a way start you off. I can remember when I was living in the community, which is an excellent opportunity to, to really kind of heighten whatever habits you have. And I would wake up in the morning and I would say to Stephen, I am angry. And he would say, but what about? And I would say, I don't know. I would just have that energy, that tension. And it's in a way, it's through living in a community that I really learn in a way to work with anger because it really heightens it to live with all these people and getting frustrated and things like this. But it, in a way, it's like, how can we learn? How can we learn to recognize that habit? How can we learn to know that irritation groove in our body? Because in anger, we generally go in the story. It's their fault. This is very quickly. It's their fault. And so it's, I am angry, but I have good reason to be angry. We always have very good reason, you know? And it's out there. It's not my fault. They make me angry. But I mean, you're, you are the one who is having the anger. And in a way, you, you reacted to something. What is going on there, in a way? Kind of looking. And how does it feel? What do I say to myself? And then there is a light, light level of anger. And that I would say is kind of a certain impatience. We can see it as impatience. I mean, a good place to look at it is driving. If you drive a car, this is a wonderful opportunity to notice impatience. Why are they driving so slowly? They do it on purpose just to annoy me, to stop me from being on time in my appointment. Instead of thinking, well, maybe they don't see very well, maybe their car is not working so well. I mean, that's what I think nowadays. You know, they must have a good reason to go slowly, not to annoy me, but they have their own reason. Or in the supermarket, I like it. I meditate in the supermarket queue. I like that, you know, just to notice. And if the impatience, I've got the wrong cue again, <laughs> you know? 
noticing. What do we do? And, mm, kind of looking for the best cue. Noticing. What is it like? How does it feel? What do we do? And to me, what is important in terms of the meditation is to really look at we are not always angry. We might have a tendency towards it, but we're not always angry. So what is the trigger? What are the contributing factors? And how does it manifest? And in a way, to become interested in that, in a way to explore our anger in the same way as we explore our fear. And also to see that anger can actually be sometimes a positive, creative feeling. It's not necessarily bad, per se. I mean, one of my most be beautiful moments, some of you might have heard me talk about this, but I just was so vivid for me, being at this Buddhist peace conference with the Dalai Lama and interface, everybody talking about peace and calm, and, you know, it was all very dozy. And suddenly this little guy comes on the, the thing and he was really small and scrawny. And he said, I am angry. And I thought, oh, that's a change. <laughs> and he was angry at poverty. And it was Labbé Pierre, one of the most famous person in France, one of the most loved person in France, actually. And he died last year. And he started to be angry at poverty in 1953. And he's the first person who really did something for the homeless in France and started a whole movement because he was angry. But he was angry in a creative, positive way, which had creative, positive results. Then you have another thing you might experience is what I would call, as an emotional pattern, what I would call a low mood, not depression, because depression uh, is, is an illness. But I'm talking more uh, something that we can, of course, low mood could turn into depression, but I'm talking more of a low mood. And, and in a way to recognize, you see, somebody who is more angry as a habit, will feel more fiery, will feel more energetic. So the problem there will be the action, which is often not wise. But the low mood will be the opposite, lowering of energy. You feel heavy, you feel weighty, you feel burdened, and you move, start to move slowly. Everything starts to move slowly. And so this is a problem with that one, is that when it's intense, you feel very paralyzed. You feel very stuck. This is, in a way, the problem with that. And it's kind of like you feel loss, emptiness. I mean, not the Buddhist emptiness, but <laughs> the existential, possibly, emptiness, hopeless, and meaninglessness. This is interesting. With this low mood, it's often associated with meaninglessness. And this is, I think, it seems to me this low mood is a little in association, possibly, <laughs> with a part of the brain who wants meaning. I mean, we are meaning-making machines. We like meaning. But in a way, not everything can have a profound meaning all the time. And I think this is a little one of our problems, especially with a low mood. That, that feeling of meaninglessness. I want 
a meaning. But I would say the meaning of life is life itself. There is no special meaning, I would say. There is life and how we can live it. Not necessarily needing a certain meaning to it. But this is another. And the thing with this intense low mood is that although it has not much energy, there is intense rumination. Intense rumination and low feeling. And this is very painful. And I think it's very hard to get out of it. It's very hard. And I think in a way what is very important is to work when it's light, to really work when it's light, so that you have tools when it's intense. What is it that could bring a little space in that lowering of energy? What is it that could bring a little sparkle, a little light in that darkness? To me, this is what, in a way, needs to happen. How can we not erase the darkness? This is very hard. But how can we bring light in it? And each person has to find, what is it that brings light to my life in small ways? Then there is this habitual, the habitual kind of feeling a little low, feeling a little low, little not so much energy. And then we have to be very careful. Because when we have this habitual thing, then anything can strike it. And then very easily we go into, poor me, poor me, nobody loves me, it's a terrible place. I think we can so easily go down there. But we have to really know it when it's habitual and to start to see what triggers it, what kind of intensify it. I think this is very important to notice the conditions, back to the conditions of the Buddha. And then you have when it's light, when it's just a little gray mood. And to me, this is where people have to work with it because it's so much easier to work when it's light. It's just a little gray. You might wake up in the morning one day and you feel, oh, and to be careful that you don't look for a meaning for it. This is, sometimes it's just there. And I remember one day, for two weeks, every morning I woke up, oh, and I felt great for, for two weeks every morning, and there was no reason for it, apart from living in England in the winter. That could be. But I did not identify with it. I did not make a story of it. I just noticed, oh, yeah, I feel a little, oh, oh. So I would just know it. I would go about my day, do things, and oh, yeah, it's still there, and just be aware of it. And then after two weeks, I was in a situation which really required great attention and great compassion. And that shifted it. A kind of a stronger feeling shifted it. And it showed me one thing, that if we are with it when it's light, and if we learn to be with it in a different way, it does not necessarily need to intensify. And so I think this is very much for us to, that's why this light, habitual, intense level is important to look at, to really work when it's light. And then it will give us, in a way, tools to how to be when it's more habitual, how to be when it's intense.
And I had an interesting experience. Uh, some time ago, I was teaching a retreat. It was a relatively small group. And I was, can't remember what I talked about, maybe thought or something of that nature. And um, I was seeing somebody in interview. And she said, oh, she, you know, she was just coming out of depression, but she'd been working on it for a year, and she was starting to feel a little better. But last night, she had a terrible nightmare, and she was really caught in this awful nightmare, and I was a tough night. So I think in the day, I talk very much about thought, having thought, not being thought, having feelings, not being our feelings. And she seems to have taken it to heart. And so the next day, I mean, I, went, I was a little concerned. She's going to have another really bad night with this nightmare. So I said, you know, how are you? And she said, it was incredible. I said, what happened? She said, I went to bed, and the nightmare appeared, the monster, because what she had nightmare about was monsters, these horrible monsters. And she saw this horrible monster appear. And she thought, this is a monster. It's not me. It's just a thought. It's just, it just manifested. But it's not me or mine. And it went. And she had a very good night's sleep. And she said, but this is the first time I was able to see my thought in that way. That I was able to look at it not being me, but just something which happened. And I didn't need to hold on to it. So in a way, I think, in a way, with the meditation, trying to see how can it help us with our emotional patterning. And now just quickly to look a little at the mental patterning. And in a way, that's what we were doing yesterday. What is it that obsesses us? What is it that occupies us? What is it that distracts us? And so again, it's the same. You have first the intense level. Intense level of thought is when you, you, you are suddenly something has happened and you go round and round and round and, and you have a feeling you can't get out of it. It's just... And this happened to me recently. We were in South Africa. We arrived there in December after Christmas or before Christmas. And I start to teach this retreat. And after today, I phoned my mother. And I said, how is it going at home? In a little village in France, so safe. And, and mother said, hmm, we've been burgled. And, you know, this and that happened. All right. And so we talked about it. And then I had to do the retreat. So I was doing the sitting meditation. And I could do two intense mental loop. One was... Safety, security, how can I make the home secure? So I would think of all kinds of things. But the other loop was more interesting. It was, how can I get revenge? So I was looking at traps I could put in the house if they came next. So I did this for about a day, and then I was sitting in meditation, and I thought, this is enough. You've done it for a day. Because I think it's important to know that when something shocking happens, something surprising happens, you will have intense thought about it. Meditation is not going to say, 
oh, I was burgled. Well, you know, it all returned to the universe, and you know, why not? You know, they needed it, or whatever you might think. I think, I mean, it's normal to kind of, you know, just feel intensely about it. I mean, it's not something which happens every day normally. But I think, in a way, the meditative awareness can make us start to see I don't need to react to it intensely for day on end. I think that there is a normal shock, a normal obsessing, and then to see. And as soon as I saw it, and I decided, this is it, let it go. I stopped security, I stopped traps. I did not need it. I just, you know, when I would be home, I would take care of the security and the traps. I better not think about that. <laughs> and so I stopped. And I've not done it since. But in a way to, to see, I mean, when something happens, you will react that way. But I think we, we not necessarily need to be so caught in it that we can't get out of it. Then you have the habits. And in the habits, meditation is fantastic for that. Meditation, you sit there, you don't do anything, so your mind just occupies yourself. And why does it occupy yourself with your mental pattern. And then you can really see them there. Daydreaming, ruminating, fabricating, judging, planning, counting, speculating, comparing. If you have any more, I am always uh, like to hear of new ones. <laughs> and we go on. And it's interesting to see. It's, it's a, just an habitual. And you can see it's like a groove. You go there, judging. Am I meditating the right way? Planning. How much should I eat today? Where should I walk? Fabricating. Hmm. She's looking at me funny. Why is she looking at me funny? What's funny about me? What's funny about her? I mean, she might just have something in the eyes. And in a way to see that, noticing, what is it? Where do I go? What are the mental patterns? Because all these are function of the mind. Daydreaming, imagination. Planning, you need to plan. But how much do you need to plan? I would say, in meditation, not more than five times. After five times, next planning, five times. Then after a while, you stop. But you see, if you plan, it's very repetitive. You don't go anywhere. It's about controlling. And then you, I mean, life is a little unpredictable, so sometimes plans don't work. Rumination is interesting. You start with the past, which was so painful, and then you go into the future where you plot revenge. Very compassionate activity on the meditation cushion. <laughs> When actually, really, only here and now, you can work on yourself so that you can cultivate confidence to meet whatever in the future. So to see, when is it a function, what I would call a creative function, and when does it become a pattern, which actually takes me generally away from really what is going on now, and also away stopping our creative functioning. And then there is, and I think that's where the, the, the focusing, the concentration can help us. We go into planning, back to the breath. 
We go into daydreaming, back to the sensation. We go into judging, back to the sound. I mean, this, we have mental habits, that's what you have to do. See them, come back. And then through that, diminish the power of the habit and go to the functioning. And then you have the light habit. And this is like shopping list, train of thought, light planning. But this is the easiest place where we can work with thought. We see shopping list. Maybe I don't need to count the shoes in my cupboard, you know? Maybe I can just come back to the breath, come back to the moment. Right now I have enough shoes for this retreat, you know? And just notice what we do, where we go, and just bring it back, being more fully, multidimensionally in the moment. And then to finish, just physical habits. I mean, I can't go into it. But one, one habit which I think we can recognize in meditation that we have is comfort. Especially in the West, we have a strong habit of comfort. When you, I mean, I presume some of you watch TV, and if you watch TV at home, I mean, it's like sitting in meditation. You know, you generally start out like this. I mean, here we watch the inner TV, there you watch the outer TV. <laughs> so we start like this, we watch TV, and then within 30 minutes, we are like this. And we generally, we like to be comfortable. We kind of move and kind of, you know, we like to be comfortable. And especially, I think, within this society where everything is made so we're comfortable, the sofa is even more comfortable, everything is more comfortable. And I think that's one, in a way, one kind of edge we touch on retreat is comfort. You know, that this, I would say, is not, I mean, this, I would say, spirit rock is the upper middle path. You know, <laughs> I have been in places which were really, I mean, really kind of, you know, much very poor and where really it was extremely basic. I mean, I've been teach I taught in Mexico. I taught in places which have been really the bare minimum you can do with uh, kind of being okay. But here, really, it's an upper middle path. But still, still, you know, we're not so comfortable. And to me, in a way, this was my breakthrough in terms of the physical comfort was in Korea. Because in Korea, you sit 10 hours a day. I was a nun there for 10 years, and you sit 10 hours a day. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you go to bed at 9 o'clock, you sit 50 minutes, 5-0, you walk 10 minutes. 50 minutes, 10 minutes, breakfast, another three times, lunch, another four times, dinner, another two times. So, lots of sitting. Not much walking. And it was very difficult. I used to sit and I could not breathe. And it was painful and this questioning. So finally I, I sat, you know, in front of the, it was summer in front of the door so I could see outside. So at least I was a little kind of more interesting. And I was sitting there, but I would only sit the first hour and then I would miss the other. I would always have very good reason. I can, come on, it's so, you know, I'll, I'll go and learn Korean. I'll go and help in the kitchen. I have something better to do. I mean, this is, it's not working really, you know. So I did this for a few weeks, only doing the first sitting and not the rest, and come back for the next one. 
And then one day, Master Cousin come and sit with us. So, sit with us, okay. Yes, yes, I'm going to do it this time. Yes, yes. Mm. Really do it. At the end of the 50 minutes, yeah. I mean, he could stay if he wanted, I was off. So, I went off to do something much more useful, of course. And then when I came back for the next period, the leader of the hall had a dictionary in hand because my Korean was very poor. It was just, I was there just a few weeks. And he said, Master Cousin said, oh, what did he say? We looked together. <laughs> Okchiro Chamta. You must bear beyond strength. So, ah, I must bear beyond strength. All right. He said it. Then I thought, well, it's true. They've been doing this for a thousand years and nobody died of it. <laughs> so possibly I could consider do it, you know, why not? And he really broke it, my kind of, you know, attaching to my habitual comfort uh, level. And I did it. From that day on, I did all the 10 hours. And after within a month, I was the first one to arrive. And I would say this is really what, in a way, was the starting point of my practice, was really going a little uh, beyond my physical comfort. And so I'm not saying that we always need to go beyond our physical comfort. If we have physical ailment or other ailment, of course, we have to take it in consideration. But we also have to see how, hmm, you know, what, you know it's kind of like that middle way, but also sometimes to push a little beyond our physical comfort. So that's what I wanted to say today. I'm a little over time. So thank you. And now there is a walking meditation.